This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Amen. The word of God for our meditation this morning is our first reading from Deuteronomy chapter 10. We'll hear again these words. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. This is the word of our God. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the old man was a fixture on that pier. Every Friday evening, without fail, he would show up, walking bent over, carrying a bucket of shrimp, which he would then sit down and feed to the seagulls. You see, many years before, the man had been the captain of a B-17 during World War II. And while that bomber was out on a mission somewhere over uh, the South Pacific, they became lost, they got out of radio range, they began to run low on fuel, they realized they were going to have to ditch the plane in the ocean, which is what they did. They crash-landed, they were able to inflate their life raft, and all of the, the captain and the whole crew were able to get on board, and they were safe. Except for the fact that they then spent the next month or so battling sun and sharks, wind and weather. But the worst enemy of all was starvation. After a few days, their meager rations ran out and they had nothing left at all to eat. It was going to take a miracle to save them. Well, God provided one. One day, as the captain dozed in the afternoon sun in their little raft, he felt something on top of his head. And he opened his eyes to see his starving companions staring at what was on top of his head with big, wide, saucer-like eyes. A seagull, really far from shore, unusually far from shore, had landed on top of his head. That seagull meant food for them if they could catch it. Well, they were able to catch it. They ate its flesh, and then they took what was left, its guts, and they used it for bait to catch fish. They were saved because that seagull, that one load seagull, seemingly sacrificed itself for them. The man never forgot, and so every Friday evening he could be seen, white hair, bushy eyebrows, bent back, walking down onto that pier to feed those seagulls. It was his way of remembering, it was his way of saying thanks. The portion of God's word before us this morning is really all about giving thanks. You see, our God has given us everything. He's given us the gifts of forgiveness and life and salvation. And he wants us to be thankful for those great blessings. He says to all of us today, make your life a thank you. How do we do that? The Bible actually gives us a wonderful and simple outline for a, a life of thanksgiving that I think beautifully summarizes the content of our text. Jesus told us this. He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The history of God's people, his chosen people, Israel, is one of great contrast. On the one hand, you have the absolute faithful care of God for his people. And on the other hand, you have the disobedience of those chosen people. Again and again, they wandered away from him. They fell into sin. They got involved in idolatry. And yet, over and over again, God rescued them and brought them back to himself and forgave them and restored them. 
God was so very kind to them, so very gracious. Moses reminded them of this. He said, Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. God took a family, just an extended family of about 70 people, and he grew them into a great nation. And then he delivered them from their captivity and slavery in Egypt, even miraculously destroying their enemies in the waters of the Red Sea. And throughout all of this, God never forgot his gracious promise given first in Eden to send the serpent crusher, the Savior. And that Savior would come from those people. With these mighty acts and these gracious promises in their minds, the children of Israel were to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Did they? Well, sadly, no, by and large, they didn't. They fell into idolatry again and again. The Lord in our text describes them as stiff-necked. Their history is a record of one obstinate act of disobedience after another. And isn't that our history too? What does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good? Do we always do this? Do we treat our God as he deserves to be treated? He demands that we fear him above all things. He wants us to reverence and respect him with awe as the one true God. But you know, often there are long stretches of time in our lives, it seems, where we hardly think about him or give his word a second thought. God demands that we walk in his ways, but often we like to be pioneers. We like to blaze our own trails. We like to do our things our way instead of his way. God commands us to love him above all things. But many times we have been guilty of giving our hearts to someone or to something else. God simply tells us that we are to obey his commands, but at times we think of those commands very negatively as these barriers uh, to a fun and fulfilling life. Or we think of them hardly at all. We think of them as suggestions that we can just sort of take or leave as we please. Because of their disobedience, God's anger burned against the children of Israel. He had every right to take them and just wipe them and their memory from the face of the earth. My friends, I think sometimes we forget that our God's anger burns against sinners, which means it burns against us. For our sins, we rightly deserve to feel the heat of God's wrath. We deserve to spend an eternity in hell's furnace, and that's a place where the fire never cools. It never goes out. Now, keeping all of that in mind, listen to these words. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Now let's be clear, God did not need Israel. Of all the nations on the earth, God chose the puniest, the pipsqueakiest of them all. He didn't choose them because they were so big. He didn't choose them because they were so powerful. He didn't choose them because they were so smart. And he certainly didn't choose them because they were so faithful and obedient to him. No, God's choice of Israel can be explained with only one word. Grace. 
It was undeserved love. Undeserved love is what made the children of Israel the objects of God's favor and the recipients of all his gracious blessings. And isn't it the same for us? My friends, in spite of the fact that we too are puny and weak and God doesn't need us, in spite of the fact that we have often angered him with our sins, in spite of the fact that we have failed our God time and time again, in spite of the fact that we are by nature utterly unlovable, the unthinkable has happened, and God loves us. And he loved us first, by the way. John put it this way. He said, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. My friends, if you ever doubt, and we all struggle with this at times, if you ever doubt that God really and truly loves you, then just fix your eyes on Jesus. Just remember his saving works and his ways. Look to your Savior. My friends, God's love can be seen in the footsteps of Christ. Every last one of them was put down on exactly the right path. Jesus always did things God's way. He fulfilled God's law in perfect obedience, and he did this for you. God's love can be so clearly seen in the crimson blood of Jesus that dripped from his holy blade veins, blood that comes down upon us and washes away all our sins, blood that Jesus still gives us in his holy supper, blood that he willingly shed on the cross for you. God's love can be so clearly seen in the empty tomb of our Savior. Jesus really died. He was buried in that tomb. He was buried there with all of our sins. But when he rose victoriously on the third day, he left all of our sins behind. They're still there in his tomb, gathering dust, completely unable to condemn us anymore, utterly unable to take away the glory that our Lord Jesus won for us. My friends, Jesus rose for you. That's grace. The unfathomable, unsearchable, unbelievable, mouth-left-hanging-open love of God for undeserving sinners like you and me. And my friends, it is in that grace that we find the strength, the energy, the zeal, the desire, the motivation, the will, whatever word you want to use, to live a life of thanksgiving to our God. Luther put it this way. He said, The law can show you the way to go but it can't give your legs the strength to get there. Only God's good news can do that. My friends, what good news is the grace of our God in Christ, the good news that energizes us to live a life of thanksgiving to our God. And by the way, the good news of our Savior doesn't just impact our relationship with our God, it also impacts our relationship with each other, with our neighbors, with our fellow human beings. You'll remember that the first three of the Ten Commandments are all about our relationship with God, vertically, some people like to put it. The last seven are all about our relationship with our fellow human beings horizontally, our relationships with each other. It impacts how we deal with each other. But of course, how we treat our neighbors is a reflection of our relationship with the one true God. The Lord Jesus himself put it this way. He said, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
So I'll ask the question, who's our neighbor? It's a pretty simple one to answer because there just isn't anybody out there who isn't your neighbor. If a person is a person, that person is your neighbor. Everyone is our neighbor. Even those people that irritate us. Even those people that we don't like very much. Even those people who do all kinds of nasty things to us when we're out there driving in traffic. Even those people that we just really don't like all that well. Everybody is our neighbor. Listen again to our text. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. You see, our God just doesn't want us to deal kindly with people who are just like us. He wants us to be kind and loving toward everyone. The poor, the needy, the sick, the homeless, the imprisoned, the misfit, the social outcast, the foreigner, whether legal or illegal, the physically and emotionally challenged, the mentally ill, everybody. So how do we show kindness to all of these people, this large group called our neighbors? Is it just a matter of of digging in our pockets and giving some money to charity so that those who are less fortunate, as it's said, could have some help? Well, that's certainly a way that we could, could reach out and help them. Does it mean volunteering to be part of some organization, some charity organization in the community, runs a soup kitchen or something like that, and serving in that way? That can certainly be a way to help out our neighbor in need. But you know something? I think one of the simplest ways that we can show love and kindness to our neighbor is by living in the roles in life to which God has called us, living in our vocations. We can show love to our neighbor by being patient parents and obedient children. We can show love to our neighbor by being loving husbands and faithful wives. We can show love to our neighbor by being fair employers and hardworking employees. We can show love to our neighbor by being safe drivers and law-abiding citizens. We can show love to our neighbor by being caring teachers and diligent students. We can show love to our neighbors by being gospel-preaching pastors and faithful members of the church. Remember something. When we show love to our neighbor, we are really showing love to our God, right? When you look at someone, see in them the face of Jesus because it's him you are really serving. And he's given us the best reason of all to do so. We love because he first loved us. In 1860, a ship ran aground just off the shore uh, in Lake Michigan. I'm not exactly sure where it was. I couldn't find that out. But apparently there was a young man who worked at the life-saving station that was very nearby who rescued 17 people. Bravely, he went into the frigid water over and over again to drag people out of this ship that was foundering and being pounded apart by the waves. And it was such a rough day that he actually permanently impacted his own health. He was never quite the same after that. And years later, at his funeral, it was noted that not one of those 17 people ever approached him, ever came to him, ever wrote a letter to say thank you to him for his bravery and for saving them. God preserve us from having such thankless hearts. Rather, my friends, empowered by our God's love and forgiveness, may we always live our life as a thank you to him, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength, loving our neighbor as ourselves. And when we fail to give God and our neighbor the love and the thanks that God deserves, well, 
which is going to happen constantly in our lives, then let's flee again and again to the arms of our Savior for that full and free forgiveness that he won for us, which is the main reason we give thanks in the first place. Amen.